My name's Darren. Nice to see you. If you're a guest with us, want to extend my welcome and say if I can ever help with anything and helping you sort of feel like this is home and make this uh, a place where you can worship regularly, I'm, I'm at your disposal in that regard. The Connection Wall is a great place to do that as well, to ask questions and whatever, but I'll be down front after the service and uh, I'd love to meet and talk with any of you who want to chat. So there's that. We're in the middle of a study in 1 Corinthians and this morning we find ourselves, as we just read in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, verses 1 through 25. Now for those of you've been part of the study in an ongoing way, uh, you're going to feel some redundancy here. And that's intentional. Remember that what we're reading in an epistle is a letter, right? It didn't have these chapter divisions and the verse breaks and all of that. Paul had sitting down, he, he sat down, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write a response, both to things that he'd heard audibly about the church at Corinth, but also to questions that they'd written him. And this isn't his first or his last correspondence with the church, but there is a flow of thought to everything he's doing. And as we said last week in 1 Corinthians 13, at the heart of everything he's teaching is that yes, God equips us and he gives us and he will grow his church and protect his church. But love is at the center of all of it. And love is the only way in which Christ is revealed. And you can have all kinds of spiritual gifts and all kinds of knowledge and all kinds of power and all kinds of whatever else religious experience you want to name. But if it's not saturated in love, then it's not done in the heart and spirit of Christ. And therefore the revelation of Christ gets lost, right? Love is at the center. Now he returns to the conversation about spiritual gifts. And if you were paying attention when we were in chapter 12, you can start to see that even in 12, he was thinking about speaking in tongues. We don't know whether uh, the church at Corinth had uh, specific questions about speaking in tongues, whether they had made statements about speaking in tongues in their initial correspondence, or whether or not he has heard audibly about concerns. Uh, Many theologians will say, and, and even based on chapter 14 here, as we'll get into in a second, Uh, Some of the commentators will say that it appears that what may be happening in the church at Corinth is that they had elevated the speaking of tongues uh, to a place of uh, high regard, a place of honor, that those who spoke in tongues and the practice of speaking in tongues became like the, the clearest way to show that you were spiritual, the clearest way to show that you had a connection with God above and beyond everything else. And so in one sense, what we see in 14 is a continuation of Paul's thinking as he says, if it's not considerate of others, then it's not in the spirit of Christ and it needs to be knocked down the ladder a little bit, right? But it also is possible that what he's doing is speaking against a culture in that particular church that had elevated the speaking of tongues to a place where it doesn't belong. And so he may be arguing against that. You kind of see it. Either way, his point isn't specifically about tongues or about prophecy. His point, once again, is about love as it's made manifest in consideration of others in corporate worship. So this is incredibly relevant for us this morning, right? All of you are here in a corporate worship gathering for one reason or another, whether you're a regular part of the family here, you've come in as a guest or with family or whatever. It doesn't really matter what brought you this morning. 1 Corinthians 14 is very practical and relevant for us because the overarching principle of what he's saying ties into everything we're doing in the midst of a worship service. And I'm hoping that you will see that as we sort of walk it through. What we are seeing here is a continuation of his established 
uh, way of love. And he continues his theme of the internal use of spiritual gifts, contrasting prophecy and tongues as a call for order and consideration in corporate worship. If I were to summarize the message of these first 25 verses, I might point you, since Valentine's Day is right here, I might point you to, uh, to when I was a kid, and maybe you have this similar experience. When I was a kid before Valentine's Day in public school, they would have you bring a shoebox to school, right? And you'd cut a little hole in the top and you'd decorate it with flowers or hearts or, you know... I feel like for some reason I always had Kermit the Frog on mine, which is not particularly romantic, but that's a memory I've got. Uh, you'd make a little box, and then all of the people in your class would bring these little Valentine's Day cards and drop them in your box. And so there'd be a point on Valentine's Day where you would share Valentine's, and they were just these cute little cards. Sometimes they had uh, candy attached to them or whatever. I'm not even sure. I don't know that kids do this anymore, because I don't remember my kids doing it anytime recently. Shannon says they did. So that just shows I'm not paying attention to my kids. It's fine. I know the names of all of our missionary kids, though, so that's something. Uh, we would make these little boxes. One of the th- here's, here's my point, because it's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 14, too. Whenever we did these Valentine's Day boxes as kids growing up, or if you brought cupcakes, say, for your birthday, there was an overarching principle that the teacher would always tell you in school. You guys remember it? You have to bring enough for everybody. You have to bring enough for everybody. If you're going to bring Valentines, you can't just bring Valentines for the people that sit right around you. You can't just bring Valentines for the ones you like the most. If you're going to bring cupcakes for your birthday, make sure there's enough cupcakes for everybody in the class to have one. If I'm to summarize the first 25 verses of 1 Corinthians 14, what he's essentially saying is God has given you these spiritual gifts. And when you bring them, place a higher priority on bringing gifts that brings something for everyone, right? That take into consideration the good of everyone. I mean, that, that really is the heart of what he's saying. But he uses prophecy in tongues as a way to sort of draw this picture, and then we can paint the picture for other exercises and other gifts in our own context, right? So before we get too far into it, let, I think it's probably worthwhile to give you a little bit of definition with regard to what we're talking about when we talk about speaking in tongues and what we're talking about when we talk about prophecy. So to do that, let's just look at the first five verses, He says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So there we already see the elevation of prophecy. That pursuit of love and earnestly desiring the spiritual gifts is the very same thing he said all throughout 13. So there is a little redundancy there. He says, verse 2, for the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So we can just take verses 2 and 3 and begin to establish a definition. When it comes to speaking in tongues, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, what Paul appears to be addressing is a spiritual gift of private and uh, unintelligible communication with God. One of the commentators I studied this week said what he's essentially talking about is a kind of like a private love language between God and man. That it is possible for human beings to have uh, uh, the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues, which in this case what he's talking about is that it's an unintelligible language. Uh, Some might call that an ecstatic language. But whether or not, and different people disagree on this, but whether or not it's an actual language, so some will say what we're talking about is the the language of the angels, right? Because there are places where it talks about speaking in the tongues of men and angels. So some will say, oh, what he's talking about is angelic language. Other people will adamantly disagree with that. Here's what we know. What he's talking about is something personal and private. Look at verse 2 again. He says, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. Here's an important distinction when we're talking about 1 Corinthians 14. 
we do see the speaking of tongues in Acts chapter 2. We're not going to turn there this morning. But in Acts chapter 2, the manifestation of the speaking of tongues has more to do with people speaking in a variety of different languages. There's a huge crowd of people. And all of a sudden, the people in the crowd are hearing the gospel in their native tongue, right? They're in a place where all of a sudden they're hearing their native tongue. So sometimes when we talk about speaking in tongues, what that's talking about is like a guy like me who doesn't know how to speak Portuguese, empowered all of a sudden by the Holy Spirit to speak the gospel in Portuguese to people who've never heard, who've never heard me speak before, right? That is one way in which we see tongues happening in Acts chapter 2. But that is not what's being described in 1 Corinthians 14, because in 1 Corinthians 14, he's talking about the kind of speaking in tongues that is between the speaker and God. So that's not the speaker speaking in Portuguese, because if it's speaking to God, God doesn't need him to speak in Portuguese. You might as well just speak in this sort of broken English I use regularly, you understand? It's not a communication with another human being. It's not a communication with someone from another place or another language. That we see in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 14, it's an exercise of worship that is between the speaker and God. Let me read it one more time, just so this settles into your mind. One who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. That's the way in which that's addressed. No one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. So we're talking about someone who speaks to God in an apparent or actual language. It's a bit of a private love language. There's mystery to it, but it does build up. He says in verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So this is interesting too. What Paul is not doing in 1 Corinthians 14 is condemning the speaking of tongues, right? He's not saying, hey, if, you're, if you've been given the gift of speaking in tongues and you have this private communication between you and God, knock it off. There's no place for that. Cut it out right away. That's not what he's saying. In fact, he endorses this private communication and will go so far as to say that when one is gifted with the gift of speaking in tongues and communicates in this mysterious and private language to God, it has the benefit of building up the speaker. There is a value to a person doing that and communicating with God in this private language. It's beneficial for the speaker. But the point he is making is that while it's beneficial for the speaker, it isn't beneficial for anyone else. Does that make sense? So it's only good for the individual. It's only good for that one person. And and therein lies the heart of his argument, right? Paul will say in this chapter, and we'll read it here in a second, that he wishes that all would speak in tongues. Now we know he doesn't believe that all of us have the same gifts. He's already made that incredibly clear. So when he says, I wish that all would speak in tongues, he's not saying that all of us should be trying to do that. He's already said that we all have different gifts as appointed by the Holy Spirit, right? But what he is saying when he says, I wish all would speak in tongues is similar to what he says in 1 Corinthians 7 when he says, I wish all could be like me and not get married, right? We talked about then uh, the fact that he said there is some benefit to this if you've got the gift, but not everybody has the gift. Same thing with speaking in tongues in a private, unintelligible, mysterious language to God. It is beneficial for those who are gifted that way, but it's only beneficial for them. That's what he's talking about here. He will also tell us later on in the chapter that he himself speaks in tongues. It's a gift that he had. So for those of you who maybe are tempted, um, tempted to want to throw out the speaking of tongues altogether because of the tradition you've grown up in or whatever, if you're tempted to throw it out, just know that in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul's not with you in that, right? Paul isn't willing to throw it all out. That's not what he's doing here. In fact, he says he has the gift. He, he, he blesses those who have the gift and wishes everybody else had the gift too. Should that be the way God appoints? What he's saying is not that speaking in tongues in an unintelligible and private language to God is bad 
in general, but he's saying that it is not beneficial to the larger congregation, right? Now, you might ask, and the reason I think you might ask this is because in, our, in the kitchen, we do a meeting, I don't know if you know this, I, we do a meeting with our staff each week called In the Kitchen, uh, where anybody can come and we just sort of talk through the message in advance. By the way, if you ever want to come to that, let me know, you're welcome. But uh, in the midst of that conversation about this message, one of the questions that came up was, if this is a spiritual gift that the Holy Spirit gives to people, where is it? We don't see it in this room, right? Like, where is it? And I, and I have a couple of answers to that. So just to kind of help you think, and then I promise we're going to get to 1 Corinthians 14. Even in our leadership, both in our staff and our elders, I think in our, the leaders of adult fellowships and small groups, in our leadership, there are differences of opinions about spiritual gifts like this. There are some people in our church in leadership who would say, they're, they're what we would call a, like a cessationist, and they would say, we believe that some of these spiritual gifts were given for a very particular time, in a very particular way, as the church was being established on the earth, and God doesn't give these gifts anymore, right? There are people who, who that's their belief, and so they're not encouraging people to lean into this gift because they don't believe that God gives this gift in the same way in 2023 as he may have given in the first century. There are others in leadership in our church uh, who would say that maybe they haven't experienced that. They don't have that gift themselves, but they don't see a place in the Bible where it says that that's coming to a close. And therefore, they're open to the practice of spiritual gifts, despite the fact that that, not ha- that has not been their personal experience. Does that make sense? So, and then also what happens in any sort of corporate group, especially a group like this, remember in 1 Corinthians, he's writing to a house church. He's writing to a small group of people. I mean, we're talking, I mean, we're talking like a hundred people max and probably not a hundred people. What he's going to show us at the end of 14 is that there has to be order to their services and that if people have prophecy or they have something they want to share, they have to do it in turn and they have to take turns and listen to one another. In a worship service like this, with hundreds of people in a giant room, most of the time the order of our service has been established in the weeks in advance and we're not necessarily doing an open mic in the midst of a worship service like this. So there isn't as much of an opportunity. Let's say, and I think it's entirely possible, this tells you a little bit about my opinion, I think it's entirely possible that some of you in the room have the gift of speaking in tongues, to have a private, ecstatic, uh, unintelligible love communication between you and God. I think it's possible that God gives you that gift today. And some of you in the room might have it. There's not really a great opportunity for you to utilize that in our particular corporate worship because it would be an interruption to everything else that's happening. It's just the way this particular size of a group is organized. But in a small group, maybe in an adult fellowship, in a men's Bible study or women's Bible study, there may be a place to exercise the gifts as long as you're paying attention to what he says more broadly about the way all of the gifts are meant to be exercised. Does that make sense? But if you're looking around here and you're going, I don't see anybody using this, well, some in leadership here would tell you that's because God doesn't do that anymore. And others might tell you he still does, but the, the context not being in a house church makes it a lot harder for some of these gifts to be manifested. And there are people who, in my opinion, have this gift, but don't utilize it in a public way specifically because of what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 14. Does that make sense? So there we go. That's, that's a little bit of preamble. You want to talk to me more about that, we can. But that's what he means when he's talking about tongues in 1 Corinthians 14. Now, when we're talking about prophecy, to give you a little bit of a definition of that, look at what he says in verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So we've already talked about this a little bit in chapters past, but prophecy here is not so much about future telling. It's not so much about, uh, you know, the, the prophet Isaiah or Elijah standing up on the table and declaring what is to come. 
but rather it's, it's truth-telling, right? It's the declaration of who Christ is for the consolation of all the categories that it lists here in three. For upbuilding, which comes up again and again in 1 Corinthians 14, for encouragement and consolation. We're talking about public teaching, which 1 Corinthians tells us happens in the voices of both men and women, right? That's what we're talking about when we talk about prophecy. It's essentially what I'm doing now, opening up God's word and saying, here's something for your consolation, for your upbuilding, for your benefit. And we don't believe that there's only one individual in each church that's capable of doing that, right? We believe there are lots of us who have the gift of declaring the truth in a way that can be received by other people. So we can see more about what happens with prophecy if we look at the end of the section we're studying today in verses 24 and 25. He says, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are all disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Inside the body, prophecy is good for upbuilding, for consolation, for reproof, all of those things. To the outsider, this same kind of prophecy becomes a source of conviction, drawing people to a recognition of who God is and surrendering their life to Christ. There's an evangelistic property to that kind of prophecy as well, right? So we see both things here. So all of that to say, he's talking about speaking in tongues, a private thing that builds up only the individual, and prophecy, a gift that's given, that builds up anybody who hears it because it's intelligible and spoken in a common language and for the good of the whole. Having laid out those definitions, uh, let's then walk through what he's saying here. Back to 1 Corinthians 14. He says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Here he gives a little bit of a caveat. It's not a little bit of a caveat. It's a major caveat where he says, speaking in tongues in a private language to God can be beneficial for the whole group if there's interpretation. And later on in this very same section, he'll say, if you're a person who has the gift of speaking in tongues, pray that you can interpret it because that's the only way it becomes beneficial to the larger group. But the emphasis of the section and the emphasis of these first five verses are these. God's going to make some people with the gift of prophecy. He's going to make some people with the gift of speaking in tongues. And in some cases, like the case of the Apostle Paul, for instance, there's a guy who's got both of these gifts. And what he's not saying is that there are certain gifts in the body that are more valuable than others. But what he is saying is that with whatever gift you've got, and this is redundant to our study last week, with whatever gift you have, whatever that looks like, you should always be thinking in the spirit of love, the spirit of Christ, who is love, you should be thinking, how does this gift benefit someone other than just me? When we come together, what Paul is articulating is that the gathering of God's people, uh, um, the gathering of God's people involves the glorification of God through the consideration of others. Let me say that again. The gathering of God's people, because he's talking about a church gathering like this one. The gathering of God's people involves glorifying God in the midst of considering other people. There is consideration involved. That, that might be a distinct shift for some of you because maybe you've heard someone say something like, when you're worshiping, you're worshiping an audience of one, right? How many of you have heard that before? 
An audience of one. When I'm preaching, right, they'll say, when you're preaching, don't worry about what people think. Don't worry about their opinions. Don't worry if they're smiling or frowning or falling asleep. No offense to some of you, right? Don't worry about all that. When you're preaching, you're preaching to an audience of one. Well, let me tell you, 1 Corinthians 14 says that's not true. 1 Corinthians 14, what Paul is essentially saying is that if I have the gift of teaching or if I have the gift of prophecy, that yes, my focus is the glory of God, but I have to be paying attention to the way in which the use of my gift is for the good of everyone else, right? In the spirit of Christ and in the spirit of love, if my gift is only benefiting me, and we've certainly seen teachers and preachers and pastors over the years that have used their teaching gifts simply to build up their own ego or their own reputation or their own empire, right? That's, that is counter to what 1 Corinthians 14 is saying. 1 Corinthians 14 says that what is greatest is that which builds up. What is greatest is that which builds up. He's not saying that it's wrong to have a spiritual gift that builds you up personally, right? We've already established that. But he would place that on a scale. He would say, if your spiritual gift is only being used for your own benefit, if it's only being used for your own good, if your spiritual gift is only being used to satisfy your own uh, hungers and desires, then it isn't as good as a spiritual gift that has been processed and utilized for the good of the whole. What he's calling us to is a worship that is considerate. And I know that seems like a thing that shouldn't even have to be said out loud. But the opposite of the greatest, the greatest use of our gifts being for the building up of the body, the opposite of that is the the places on the whole other end of the scale where we use our gifts for the tearing down of the body, for division, right? For breakdown, for gossip, for rumor, right? And, And it's entirely possible to use your teaching gift to lead people astray. It's entirely possible, not just to use it in a way that's private and personal, which isn't as good as corporate, right? It's possible to use it for something that isn't, not only isn't building up the church, it's tearing the church apart. We, we, we want to take this on the chin. We want to pay attention to what this is saying. What is done must glorify God in its consideration of all. Even in our singing, listen to this, in our singing together in a worship service like this one, our singing is for the glory of God, but it is also for the good of the people to the right and left of you, Right? This gathering isn't just for the glory of God in regard to the way we personally approach him. It is good for the glory of God in the way that we consider other people. I I don't want to get in the weeds on this, but I was trying to think of a very practical and easy sort of low-hanging fruit like example of this. I will tell you that one of the historic issues in our particular community, and I don't know why this is the case, but we really like coming to things late right? And this isn't me like slapping anybody's wrist or whatever. I know on the days when I don't preach, I stand at the doors and like people that come in late are always worried I'm keeping attendance. I'm not, I don't care, right? I'm just happy to hug you and pray for you and love you. But can I just say that it's possible, and this isn't universally true. Sometimes we're late because we got a bunch of kids and we're trying to get sweaters on all of them and get them out of, out of the house. But it's also possible that maybe the reason some of us roll in late every week is that we think this worship service is just about us. We're not thinking about the way that reads to somebody else in the room, that there might be somebody in the room who doesn't know the first thing about Jesus. There's somebody else in the room who's exploring things of faith. And when they watch all, all the faithful followers of Jesus show up 15 minutes after the service starts, that maybe that creates a little question mark in their head to go, how important is this Jesus really, right? How important is this community really when we all just sort of roll in? We don't have this problem as much anymore, but when I first started at this church back in the day, there were people who would leave early, the same opposite in reverse, right? Who would get up before the service was over. And sometimes that had to do with the fact that they didn't like the music or they wanted to get to Mimi's cafe and get a quiche before anybody else, or I don't know what the thing was, right? 
and they would roll out. Well, I, I can't judge. Maybe they were sick and needed to go to the hospital. Maybe they were having an asthma attack and needed to get an inhaler out of their glove compartment. I have no idea what caused people to leave. But there were certainly people every week back in the day who got up and rolled out about 15 minutes before our corporate worship was done. Why? Because they weren't considering the good of the group. They weren't considering the glory of God in consideration of others. They were considering their own comfortability and their own preferences and their own desires and the things they want. Well, what 1 Corinthians 14 is saying is, in your worship of God and in the exercising of your gifts, it isn't just about you. Think about the way it makes a difference in the lives of other people. He uses prophecy and tongues to paint a much bigger picture. Remember that back in uh, chapter 8, he's talking about knowledge. And he says, some of you are so proud of the knowledge you have that you can eat meat sacrificed to idols. But that knowledge, all it does is puff you up instead of building up the church. I think we have to be really careful that we're concerned with upbuilding of one another. That we're glorifying God in our consideration of one another. One of the commentators I wrote or read this week said that what he's speaking against here when it comes to speaking of tongues, is like the, uh, it's like the public display of personal wealth with no intention to share. Think about that for a second. The public display of personal wealth with no intention to share. That kind of gets to the heart of what Paul's talking about. He's like, I'm really happy that some of you have the gift of speaking in tongues and you have this beautiful conversation with God between you and God that nobody else can understand. And it's awesome that you have that, but it doesn't do anything for anybody else. And as people who are following Jesus, we should be thinking, how can I use my gift in a way that blesses other people? So he says, if you have the gift of speaking in tongues, it should be interpreted. And he doesn't just say it should be interpreted by someone else. In this particular case, he's saying, maybe you do your own interpretation here, right? So there is a sense, what? Don't worry, about, I, I, think, I think it's possible in the text to get hung up on speaking in tongues. And you have all kinds of questions about speaking in tongues and how it works and what it sounds like and should you do it or shouldn't you. Don't let yourself get sidetracked by side issues about speaking in tongues. He's using that as a practical example of a bigger issue. The bigger issue is all of you have gifts and so do I. Let's use them for the glory of God in consideration of others. That, that's the point of this next section, right? He'll go on to give us a couple of examples. Look at verse 6. He says, now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? There's an implied response to that question, which is you won't. He says, if I come speaking in tongues and nobody knows what the heck I'm talking about, is there a benefit to you? And the answer is no, right? So that's the first illustration. The second one is this. He says, if even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? A flute or a harp or a, a lyre, right? These things are sat on a table. They're not doing anybody any good. Or if they're played in a way that doesn't make any sense, it isn't possible for the receiving audience to comprehend or to appreciate what's being played. The third illustration is of a bugle in verse 8. He says, if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? If the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? He says, there's something important about calling each other to action. And if the bugle is like, you know, doesn't really do it. Doesn't get anybody going. Verse 9. So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. If you're the kind of person that takes notes, I would invite you to underline that verse 12. Strive to excel in the building up of the church. That's at the heart of what he's saying. 
that we have to be considerate of one another as a way to glorify God in our worship. I know I've just said that like six different times. The last illustration he uses, by the way, here is of someone speaking a foreign language. And he says, if I walk into a community where someone's speaking a language I don't understand, they feel like a foreigner to me and I feel like a foreigner to them. His final example is essentially saying that if we use our gifts in a way that's only personal, personally beneficial or if we worship in a way that's all about our own desires and our own benefit with no regard and consideration for other people, that what happens is we make the people who've come into our community feel like foreigners. The last thing he's using there is the idea of inclusion, including people so they don't feel like they're on the outside and they don't know what's going on. He said, if you play a bugle with indistinct notes, no one's called to battle. If you have a beautiful harp or a, or a, a flute on a table and nobody's playing them well, th- there's no value in that, right? He says, it shouldn't be indistinct. And so we have to be focused on building up the church, building up the body. Let's move on. He gives a personal example of himself here in, in 13 and following. Let's read 13 through 20. He says, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret, right? So there he's talking about the the speaker interpreting. The one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. What's that prayer indicative of? That prayer is indicative of desire, consideration, right? That it isn't enough to simply say, I have the gift of speaking in tongues and me and God have these great conversations and nobody else is included. No, that the person who has that should be hungry and desirous of good for others. That's the principle. He says in verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. By the way, if you're thinking about starting a Christian band, infants in evil is a really good band name. So just think about it. You know, you can take that if you want. What's he saying? Here, here in this section, when he starts to talk about praying and, and giving thanksgiving and singing, he's talking about in spirit. Notice in your translation, it should have a lowercase s rather than a capital S. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit in this case. He's using spirit more in, in the Jewish tradition, which has more to do with the core and the heart. He says, if I'm, if I'm worshiping from my core, I also want to have my mind inclined to the good of others. If I'm, if I'm giving thanksgiving to God, I also want to have my mind inclined to others because if I'm giving thanksgiving in an unintelligible way, then the people around me can't even be in agreement with me, right? If I'm singing praises, I want to be singing from my core to God, but I want to have a thought for the good of other people. That's, that's that whole middle section. And what he goes on to say then in verse 20, when he says, do not be children in your thinking, be infants and evil, and in, but, but in your thinking, be mature. He, what he's saying here is that... Um, Well, let me say it this way. The presence of spiritual gifts are not indicative of spiritual maturity, right? You get that? Let me say it again. The presence of spiritual gifts are not indicative of spiritual maturity because anyone who puts their faith in Christ 
is, is gifted spiritually by the Spirit of God. We all have spiritual gifts, right? So that, there's no, uh, there's, that has nothing to do with spiritual maturity. The, the person who puts their faith in Christ in that moment is equipped by God. And actually, even prior to that, has been equipped in some ways just by the design of God from birth, right? The presence of spiritual gifts is not a sign of maturity. You want to know the sign of maturity? It's how you use those gifts. We talked about this last week. That there are a lot of different ways to use the gifts, but he says the most excellent way is love. Now he'll go on to say that if you're looking around your community and you're trying to figure out who those that are spiritually mature are, you can tell those who are spiritually mature because they are concerned about the needs of others more than themselves. They're using their gifts. They're worshiping and praising and thanking God from the core of who they are, but they have a mind for the good of others. He says, don't be, don't, don't be infants in the glory of God or infants in worship. He says, if you're going to be infants in anything, be infants in evil, but be mature in the use of your gifts in the upbuilding of the church in your thinking, be mature, right? The emphasis there is that love drives us beyond how this feels to me. Is this, it drives me beyond how this feels to me to, is this good for others, Right? That's spiritual maturity. Romans chapter 14 verse 19 says, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. If you are looking for spiritual maturity in the community of God, if you're looking for spiritual maturity, you're you're not just looking for the people who are the oldest. You're not necessarily looking for the people who spend the most time telling you they're spiritually mature. You're not necessarily looking for the people who spend the most time pushing their way to the front of the line and making other people listen to them or their opinions. That's not necessarily where spiritual maturity is found. Spiritual maturity is found in a person that is diligent to be worshiping God wholeheartedly with the thought for the good of others. That's spiritual maturity. You know people like that. You know them. But you also know people who have spiritual gifts and sometimes are accredited with spiritual maturity when there is no spiritual maturity there because their pursuit of God is purely selfish, preferential, divisive. The last thing he does is maybe the most confusing part, and we'll look at this in verses 21 through 25. He says, and he quotes from Isaiah 28. He says, in the law, it is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Let me just give you a quick reference. You can go back and read Isaiah 28 as your homework this week if you want. Uh, In Isaiah 28, there is a condemnation of the people of Samaria. And their condemnation is for having heard the words of the prophets saying, you know what? The prophets talk like babies. They treat us like babies. They talk to us in all this simple language. Blah, 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 blah. Precept by precept, line by line. The prophets speech to us is boring. And then they engage in all kinds of wickedness and revelry. In fact, it's quite graphic in Isaiah 28. God says, oh, you think the teaching of the prophets is too clear and understanding for you? Well, guess what? The Assyrians are going to come. They're going to overthrow your town. They're going to take you into captivity. And then you're going to feel like babies when a foreign nation is speaking to you in their tongue and you don't understand a word of it. That's Isaiah 28. A warning, a condemnation for the people of Samaria for not appreciating the simple instruction of God and instead wanting something that they perceive to be more suited to their level of maturity. And God saying, no, what you're going to get instead is I'm going to reveal myself to you through the tongues of foreigners, which you won't understand at all. He uses Isaiah 28 as an illustration. And here's where it got confusing for me in my preparation. Verse 22, he says, thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. At first glance, verse 22 feels like the opposite of everything else he said, right? 
Now he says, oh no, tongues are a sign for the unbeliever or the outsider, the person who doesn't know Jesus. And prophecy is a sign for the person on the inside. And you say, well, if it's unintelligible, and how can it be a sign? My mistake, and you might make this mistake too, so I want to clear it up for you, is that by quoting Isaiah 28, what he's pointing us to is a negative sign. A negative sign. For the people of Samaria at the time, God's people who had rejected the simple instruction of the prophets, there was a negative sign in the unintelligible language of the Assyrians. What he's saying now is that for unbelievers who come into our community, if we're preoccupied with our own edification personally, if we're a selfish, self-centered right community and we're using our gifts just for our own good... People will come in and that will be a negative sign to them. So when it says sign, here's the thing to know. In, in these cases, the first example of sign he uses is a negative. The second example of sign he uses is a positive. He says, you're speaking in tongues as a sign to the unbeliever. And he, gives, he, he, he articulates this. Look at what he says uh, in, uh, in 23. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, the outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your mind? It becomes a negative sign to them because they come in and they go, I don't know what's going on here. It's, cr- it's like crazy town in there. Everybody talking unintelligible all at the same time. Bunch of jibber jabber. I don't get it and I'm out. Becomes a negative sign to them and can lead to their rejection of Christ. On the flip side, he says prophecy is a positive sign or a sign to believers. Well, how does that work? He tells us in uh, 24 and 25. If all prophesy, an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So what's the positive sign for the believer in prophecy? It's the outside recognition of the internal revelation of God. Does that make sense? That an unbeliever would come in and if we're doing things in order and we're doing things in consideration of other people, if we're worshiping God wholeheartedly with the thought to the way other people will perceive it, that the outsider comes in and sees God in our midst. It's worth noting at this church, we talk a lot about the revelation of Christ. In fact, it's the thing we are striving to do, that Christ would be revealed in us and to us and by us, right? But you know who assesses the revelation of Christ in a community of believers? It's not us. We're not the ones who determine if Christ is being revealed in us. We're not the ones, we don't get to look at each other and go, hey, good job, high fives all around, we revealed Christ today. No, 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 because that's not ours to determine. We have to strive to reveal Christ in clarity and understanding, but you know who perceives the revelation of Christ? It's the outside testimony that is a positive sign to the insiders. When we hear people from the neighborhood and from the apartments and from the world saying, I looked at the church of Jesus and I saw Jesus. That's a sign to us. And prophecy moves that ball down the field in a way that personal demonstration of speaking in tongues, for instance, or any kind of preferential worship doesn't do. I'll finish here. I'll finish here because we're going to take the next section next week. The bottom line here in all of this is similar to what we've seen all along. Use your gift with consideration of others. Pursue love. Worship from the heart while considering the impact on others. Your personal experience is less important than our worshiping together. Worship, and I said this already, but I'm going to say it again. Worship is an act of consideration. It's an act of consideration. Consideration of the glory of God and his worth and consideration of the good of others. That's what worship is. And if we only do one of those, we've missed the heart of 1 Corinthians 14. 
The heart of 1 Corinthians 14 is that worship would be done in order and intelligibly for the glory of God and the good of others at the same time. I don't want you to be worried about uh, coming late next week, right? You might have a flat tire or you might, uh, if you walk out of here today and you think, well, that was just a message about the fact that the pastor wants us to come on time. You've misunderstood. I do, here, I do want you to come on time, but that's not the point. The point is we want to be a community of people who for the glory of God are not just in it for ourselves, but we're thinking about the way even our singing is for God and others. Our prayer is for God and others. The teaching is for God and others. That we do not have an audience of one because we are part of a body. The love of Christ is the most excellent way to utilize these gifts. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for the text. I even thank you for the pieces that are complicated um, because it's a great reminder. And it, and it does, I mean, it's no surprise that you have masterfully given us this text in a way that repeats similar themes again and again. I don't think it will be possible for us. I pray that it will not be possible for us as the family of God to walk away from our study of 1 Corinthians 14 and continue to pursue in activities that are purely selfish or that promote division or, or, or that are unintelligible to those around us, but that we will worship you wholeheartedly with an eye toward the good of others. Also for the sake of your glory is my prayer. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen.